0: She's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On
1: this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to
0: keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. On today's episode, we are talking with my friend, the beautiful, smart, and sweet Dr. Nicole Harkin, who is a board-certified internist, cardiologist, and clinical lipidologist. After completing her medical school at Boston University, Dr. Harkin received her internal medicine training at NYU and her cardiology fellowship at Columbia University. She is the founder of Whole Heart Cardiology, which is a preventive telecardiology practice based out of San Francisco, California. Dr. Harkin is passionate about preventing heart disease through healthful, sustainable lifestyle changes and is available for consultations for patients in California, New York, and Florida. Let's welcome her to the show. Welcome, Dr. Nicole Harkin. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for that warm
1: welcome. Um, I feel like you made me sound a lot smarter than I actually am. That's like a lot of buildup to what's about to happen. Um, but I'm so glad we finally got a chance to sit down and chat. It'll be fun.
0: Yes. There are so, I have so many questions and I know that my audience does too, because as the preventive person that sees people who are either healthy and hoping to stay healthy or are living with a chronic condition and wanting to optimize their health while living with that disease, the heart health is always kind of at the forefront of what we do and talk about when it comes to preventive medicine. And I know that a lot of people know kind of all the basics. Everyone you know, knows that we need to control our blood pressure. We need to control our cholesterol, but you and I practice in a way that's very um, educational and very much a partnership with our patients. And I think because of the way traditional medicine is set up, a lot of doctors don't have the time to really truly educate patients on how to do the things that we're asking them to do, how to reduce their blood pressure, lose weight, lower their stress, get better sleep. And so that's kind of what you and I share in common is that focus on prevention and the focus on education, teaching our patients how to live lives that will reduce their risks of developing major life-threatening or chronic conditions that will significantly impact their quality of life. So let's start there. How, how do you approach a patient who um, has a known cardiac condition or cardiac risk factors, and they come to you and they say, how am I going to get this control? How am I, how am I not going to suffer something catastrophic or some long-term debilitating cardiac condition?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that's my bread and butter as a preventive cardiologist. I, um, I love being able to help people who, um, either have had a cardiac event and want to understandably prevent any further events, um, as well as people who have risk factors or a strong family history, um, sort of really delve deep into what is my cardiovascular risk, um, how can I modify it, um, and what should I be doing going forward? Um, and as you correctly stated, um, you know, tradition, within the traditional medical model, um, it's really difficult for physicians to really um, get into the weeds with their patients. Um, and it's not because doctors are, you know, don't want to do those things. Um, but one, we're not, um, you know, not a lot of our training uh, focuses on that. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work I'm sure both you and certainly I, I've definitely done has been outside of kind of the traditional medical model in terms of um, really um, getting a further understanding in terms of doing that. And then also, we don't um, have the time to do that. Um, And so, um, so I feel so privileged to be able to to be able to spend that time that's necessary with patients to really help them figure out, you know, how to how to move forward. Um, And so I think, you know, it just starts a lot with, what are your goals? Where are you at? And where do you want to be? Um, And, you know, similarly to you, it's really about developing that physician patient relationship, that's a partnership. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, really kind of figuring out, okay, where are your barriers? Let's start small. um, And let's work on, say, you know, switching out the egg McMuffin for oatmeal in the morning, and then let's go from there, you know, and so, um, so each each patient experience, I approach with just kind of an openness to where are you at, and then Mm -hmm. also really tailoring it to Um, there are specific risks and specific goals. Patients, you know, studies have shown that patients do better when the plans are individualized and personalized.
0: Yeah. Every person has their own routine. Like you said, their own barriers. Uh, Every person has a different level of commitment and dedication. You know, some people, uh, patients that I have will say, you know, I'm going to eat bacon. So just give me the statin. And some people will say, you will You know, bury me 40 years prematurely, you know, instead of me taking that medication. So everyone's commitment level to what they want to, how much they want to participate is different. And you're right, trying to set blanket kind of... Uh, guidelines or a routine or regimen is I think really pointless with, with cardiac health, uh, you know, as with most things, an individualized approach is, is most definitely the best way to go about it. How do you talk to someone who has risk factors that are unmodifiable, like their genetics. And they say, well, you know, my dad died, you know, or had a heart attack at a young age. And I'm very anxious that that's going to happen to me. I can't run myself and I can't run anymore. I can't eat any better. What are the, what are the kind of support systems in place for patients who have genetic risk factors that you cannot modify?
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I think, um, you know, we really focus on that, 80% 80% of heart disease that's preventable, right? It's thought that a good portion of heart disease is preventable, and that's exciting and that's awesome because that's mean, that means that means that's stuff that we can all do something about to prevent heart disease. But there is certainly a genetic component um, to heart disease as well um, that that's important to highlight, right? Um, and I think that's a very um, specific uh, group of patients who, um, and I see see this quite frequently. Um, you know, my father had a heart attack at, at 50. How do I make sure that that's not me right mm-hmm. um And it's important to recognize that while I um, focus extensively on lifestyle modifications, it is not a cure-all. We can't prevent every single disease, obviously, with just a good diet, right, and exercise. Um, And so so I think getting those patients who have a strong family history into care early um, is is really empowering, right? Um, And so we look at, okay, what are your other risk factors that we can do something about in order to, to reduce your risk as much as possible? Um, and then, you know, is there what? What is that specific genetic risk? Um, so, is it something like a genetic dyslipidemia, which is a hereditary cause of an increased cholesterol? Uh, the most common one of those being something like familial hyperlipidemia, which is when your bad cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol, is greater, typically greater than 190, um, in conjunction with a family history of heart disease. So that is an example of someone who cannot just change their diet and typically get their cholesterol low enough um, that they can prevent heart disease. Um, And so those are patients who can go on cholesterol medicines um, early on um, and and, and significantly modify their risk of developing heart disease in the future. Um, And there's there's other examples of that, obviously, as as well. Um, And then I think I'd also just highlight, um, not to be all doom and gloom, um, that that studies have shown um, that there's actually a great uh, study in the New England Journal a couple of years back looking at different um, risk groups, uh, familiar risk um, and based on something called a polygenic risk score um, which is just, it's unfortunately not yet uh, really clinically available yet but we know that there's a lot of different um, genetic components of that increase risk, um, and so you can put that all together and and kind of uh, stratify people based on how high risk or low risk they are. Um, and they actually found that um, even in ind- individuals at the highest risk uh, from a genetic standpoint, um, that. Uh, lifestyle changes actually reduce their risk as well. So lifestyle factors are, are while they're not a cure-all, they can be really incredibly important. And I like to use that um, and discuss that with my patients who have a fam- strong family history um, to, just to give them a sense of empowerment. They're, they can, you know, with medications and lifestyle sort of lower their risk. And then, you know, just following them more closely, you know, maybe there's someone who earlier on gets a coronary artery calcifications which I'm sure we can talk about, or a carotid IMT, you know. So we look at, at those people just a little bit more closely as they age, um, to really pick up
0: any early signs of heart disease. So not all family history or genetic risk factors are the same and they do not all confer the same ultimate outcome or risk level. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that I hadn't seen that study and I'm going to go take a look for it because I think, I think when you think about like someone in my family has, you know, something catastrophic or even just has risk factors for cardiac disease and sustain some kind of cardiac injury, you automatically think, well, that's going to be my fate as well. And, um, so yeah, modifying your own lifestyle, you know, chances are if you're of middle age now, forties, fifties, chances are your parents had a very different lifestyle, in terms of diet, exercise, may have been smokers. Chances are their lifestyle was a little bit different and that should confer some kind of risk reduction for you if you don't follow in those same footsteps. How much does the stress of that, knowing that, and stress in general, contribute to the development of heart disease? Because we're under a lot of stress. We are a nation living stressful lives That are, and the stress is seemingly inescapable. How does stress contribute? How does anxiety about your health contribute to the development of heart disease? And is there anything that we can do to reduce that?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think traditional medicine has done a really good job of identifying and addressing the traditional cardiac risk factors that you you mentioned, you know, cigarette smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol all that good stuff. Um, but it's really only been um, recently that we're starting to really acknowledge the impact that um, things like psychological well-being has on the body. Um, and, um, so chronic stress is a really good example of that. Um, and it's super important to mention, uh, not only because we are a nation of stress, but this year in particular has yeah. been just, um, you know, incredibly, incredibly difficult for, for many of us. Um, so it's been known for some time that, um, acute stress, like, um, what's found within individuals who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that, that, are, um, or, you know, adverse um, uh, child events, um, those are certainly in, uh, associated with increased risk of chronic disease and, and cardiovascular disease. Um, and it's only been more recently that it's been better acknowledged that this chronic stress that the vast majority of us experience, um, whether it's financial or work-related um, or otherwise, is also associated with with increased risk of, of Cardiovascular disease. Um, and the meta-analyses differ, but it's anywhere from 20 to 40% increased risk of, of heart disease, which is profound. I mean, that's certainly right. given, given how many of us experience chronic stress, you know, that's a really important potentially modifiable risk factor that's just not talked about enough. Um, so, so, and then your second part of the question, which is the important one, is what can we do about it? And does it matter? Um, and so studies have shown that things like optimism, overall happiness and outlook on life, connections and relationships, um, those are associated with a uh, lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, And so in terms of interventions that we can do as a community, um, making sure that we are um, there for each other and build our relationships with our family and our communities and our friends, um, that can overall reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, And then things like meditation and mindfulness practice. Um, while some of the studies haven't been um, shown super strong associations, the most recent meta-analysis um, an that I looked at did um, show that overall we do see reductions in cardiovascular endpoints with um, with meditation and other mindfulness practices, um, and we see lower rates of, of blood pressure, lower rates of inflammation. Um, so there's different biomarkers that we see that get lowered with things like like meditation um, that can be really uh, impactful.
0: And we're talking about the folks who are studying these things. They are really um, controlling for these independent risk factors and these independent factors that modify risk. So we're talking about real science and the fact that we are just starting to study things that have been so crucial that have that have been medicine for years things like mindfulness meditation um, some you know complementary or uh, integrative types of therapies we're starting to really incorporate them and find the scientific value in them um, I don't know if spiritual connectedness has been studied as it relates to reducing stress, inflammation and therefore the risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, And also one other thing that I counsel my patients on and coach them through one of the most important things is sexual intimacy. And I want you to tell me that having more sex will reduce my cardiac risk factors. Is that true or not true?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. hundred (laughs) percent. You know, I actually, that's a really good question. I don't know if that's been specifically studied, but certainly relationships and having connectedness, um, which we know sexual intimacy is dramatically impacted by that yeah. um uh, certainly reduces our risk so 100%
0: yeah I'm, as a, i'm a do so as as an osteopath i um really believe and utilize and study the power of the pa- the, the healing power of touch and so I'm not just talking about, you know, the physical release of, of, um, sexual intercourse, but I'm talking about, like you're saying the, 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 con- the, human connectedness, the endorphins, the, um, natural healing hormones and chemicals that are released when you experience pleasure, connection, intimacy, and emotional, um, um emotional, um, connectedness or relationship. So, um, it is a prescription. Let's just start writing it. I mean, right.
1: Like, yeah. I like
0: it. So, so we are great when a patient comes into the emergency department, uh, with an acute MI, they have a heart attack. We give them all the right meds. We perform all the right procedures. We get them to the cath lab and in under, under an hour, we can have that cardiac event reversed and save that person's life. We are awesome at that. Unfortunately, too many times that is the first sign of heart disease for many people is when they come in with a serious life-threatening cardiac event. How do we convey and stress the importance of prevention in younger generations who may not feel that their cardiac health is important and will delay caring for their bodies and their hearts until the point where they have to, because they've undergone uh, or experienced a significant cardiac event?
1: That's the million dollar question. Um, I, It's really um, a passion of mine right now. It's trying to sort of answer that question um, because we know and have known for some time that cardiovascular disease begins in childhood. Um, We have seen different studies, autopsy studies on individuals who have died for other reasons, accidents, things like that. Um, And the vast majority of children and adolescents already have what's called fatty streaks, which is the beginning stages of this cholesterol buildup that happens in our arteries, um, in our arteries. And so, um, so it's something that is obviously incredibly important but as as we all know we feel invincible in our 20s and it's all about you know am i fitting in my my genes not am i putting the right fuel into my body that will nourish me and you know Im- improve my overall health right um and and we know that those those things are very 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 different um um and so um so i think um you know increasing awareness and campaigns surrounding sort of this focus on wellness but in like the true sense of the word um and sort of our um, being good to our bodies um from an overall overarching perspective of of, um, nourishment and exercise and things that are um, good for our health and our bodies um, is is really at the forefront of where I think we we need to be. Um, and I, I I wish I had a better answer as to how to do that because I think it's really it's very difficult. But you know it begins with um, better policies on a national scale, right? Um, yeah. Governmental policies in terms of um, where are we putting our dollars um, for the the right foods. Um, you know what. Are we feeding our kids in, in schools? you know, ed, what kind of education are they getting about health um, and their bodies? Um, so, you know, it's obviously a very complicated, loaded question. but, um, but I think um, it really is uh, where we, we need to, to be. And if nothing else, this, this pandemic has highlighted that a massive um, impact that our, our body, overall body health, immune system, chronic disease burden can have on, on our Um, health in other ways.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, our society is one where being healthy is a very expensive and oftentimes inaccessible task. I mean, the health food, it's, it's, you know, $5.99 for a salad and $0.99 for a Big Mac. You know, we live in a society that's driven by consumerism, that's totally um, excessive in all the ways excess, you know, too much sitting, too much working, too much stress, too much food, and not enough exercise, outdoor time, time for social relationships and connectedness. And so it it seems insurmountable. Um, And it seems like the kids kind of have it have it together. They want to do those things. They want to be active and they want to eat, you know, the, 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 the fruits and the good stuff. And it's just that a lot of times that it's not accessible and, 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 it does require a community paradigm shift. You know, we can talk all we want about what you should do. Um, in reality, having access to those, you know, those types of the type of food that you need to eat, um, and, Across the board, having a job that promotes wellness or that values wellness, that values you know your activity level and your emotional well being, um, is something that I think is hopefully going to swing in a different direction as the pandemic has revealed to us. Kind of really how how much healthier we could be um, if we are given some better resources. Um, so, so, so in that same vein, it's a great segue into the question of what should we eat and can we drink alcohol those are the two questions <laughs> because because there are there's so much information out there if you were to go and search heart healthy diet you're going to find that low carb high fat is the best for your heart and your cholesterol the mediterranean diet you know the uh, low cal low um fat diet and it just doesn't make sense that they all could be right so how do we how do you generally describe a heart healthy diet and does is, um, does that diet include permission for some alcohol? Questions.
1: So um, we have a large amount of evidence at this point, um, and we can talk about the different layers of evidence and the different types (laughs) of evidence, but all of it does point towards um, the the massive impact that increasing your intake of plants can have on um, reductions in cardiovascular disease. And when I say plants, I mean vegetables, fruits, whole grains, um, nut seeds, legumes, um, which are like beans and things like that. Um, so um, so we see in say um, shorter um, randomized controlled trials, which are the type of studies where um, we put people into different groups and we give them an intervention and we see what happens. So we we've seen that in those types of studies, um, whether they're shorter um, in duration and we look at um, you know, reducing different um, risk factors that are important for heart disease, like blood pressure, Cholesterol, or something like that. Um, we see reductions um, with those types of diets in all of those risk factors. Um, we also have seen it in larger trials um, where um, we are looking for for the or longer in duration and we're looking for actual reductions in heart attacks and things like that. Um, the most recent and famous of being um, looking at the Mediterranean diet. Um, but I think the important commonality of of the diets that have really have um, robust data behind them is that they're 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 full of, of plants, right? Um, so for something like the ketogenic diet um, or other diets that are are really low carb and and higher in meat, um, there's really a, a lack of any sort of long term data showing that they're either safe or or reduce um, cardiovascular um, risk. Um, so. So I think, you know, something like the Mediterranean diet, like it sounds very complicated, right? It sounds like there's so many contrasting uh, um, different diets out there, yes. um, but really what it would, I mean, right. I mean, you, there's a thousand of them, but really when you look at the, the diet, like the Mediterranean diet, the whole food plant-based diet, um, you, you know, those, the dash diet, they all are actually incredibly common in what food groups they emphasize. And those are the plants that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where we come back to kind of that personalized approach. While I've had a lot of success, there's certainly, um, room for more plant predominant diets, which is yeah. a Mediterranean diet. I mean, it yeah. really is. It's, it's, it's the vast majority of plants and then some fish and, and maybe a little bit, bit of meat for it. And, um, so so I think that it doesn't have to be this confusing, um, and we've just somehow made it that much more confusing. How do you feel about um, intermittent fasting? <clears throat> oh, and then I I didn't answer the alcohol question either. That oh, was like yes. your number do, one. I mean, I didn't, I right? won't let you get how away with I, that. How did you let me get away with that? Um, <laughs> So getting so intermittent fasting and then alcohol. So, um, alcohol briefly, I will say that, um, it's included in say something like the Mediterranean diet. So the big study, the randomized control trial, um, med ha- did include modern amounts of alcohol, which when we say moderate, I think most of your listeners know is one drink a night for women and <laughs> two for men, which I'm sure is definitely not what we've been consuming during this pandemic. Um, uh, you know, in general, sort of a moderate amount of intake, um, has not found to be harmful and may be somewhat beneficial. The reasons for that are quite controversial. Um, there's other data that shows that any level of alcohol intake increases your risk for something like atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. So while I don't, um, So I don't tell patients who aren't drinking right now to start drinking for their heart health. Um, But if I have patients that are consuming alcohol, I sort of present that data to them and let them do with it what what they will. So that's my answer to that one. And then in terms of intermittent fasting, I think that is an area of research that we are gonna learn so much about in the next, hopefully five to 10 years. Um, Right now, definitely there's a lot of enthusiasm for it that isn't always fully backed by some of the literature, um, but it's certainly really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. most of the data we have is in animals that shows kind of this this, um, cardiometabolic benefit. Um, But there's certainly some, some trials that show um, improvement in cardiometabolic parameters as well. Um, now there's some controversy is this just really purely caloric restriction and you could do it not in sort of that fasting um, uh, timeframe, but um, but there's definitely some trials that, that show some, some really early promising results that aren't necessarily attributed to weight loss and really is more about that sort of Eating within a time frame that's more in line with our circadian rhythms, yes. and I think circadian rhythms is another really important way in which kind of um, we've sort of. Overlooked the importance of getting sleep, um, the adequate amount of sleep, you know, in that right time frame um, and sort of that uh, getting our bodies back in line with kind of our natural biological clocks. Um, and so I think, you know, when you say intermittent fasting, it can mean a thousand things to a thousand different people. It can, some people say that that's, you know, circadian fasting, which is eat within, you know, 10 hours or so. Other people are talking about a 16 and eight window. Other people are talking about fasting for two days. And that's part of where there's issues in the literature we don't have like a set definition. Um, so I think people, we're still kind of figuring out what's going to be that ideal thing and maybe it's different for everyone, but I think in the next five, 10 years, we'll see that that becomes a more important component. Um, not just what we eat, but, but when we eat. Yeah. Um, just, and I will say
0: anecdotally. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I sorry. just wanted to define intermittent fasting in case anybody hadn't heard that term. Um, intermittent fasting is just instead of, Um, changing what you're eating or the content of what you're eating, intermittent fasting involves changing your window of eating, which means that instead of waking up and eating breakfast at 7am and eating throughout the day for 12 hours until you have dinner at 7pm, it shortens the window of eating to, you know, either an eight hour period, sometimes a four hour period, and then gives you a prolonged period where your body is not Releasing insulin, and therefore, the theory is that your body has a um, has a a time to recover and is not under constant metabolic stress, and therefore has the ability to then release hormones and chemicals that are restorative that can um, improve your metabolism and change the way your body processes what you eat when you are eating. So, and there, like Dr. Harkin said, there are a couple of different ways that you can approach intermittent fasting you can do it by itself without restricting or changing the content of what you're eating. You can use it in conjunction with a specific type of diet, like a Mediterranean diet for, you know, weight loss for improving cholesterol levels, blood pressure levels, um, um metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So just to just wanted to define that in case anybody hadn't heard about that. I'm sorry. Now you were going to say, No, I
1: think that's, that's perfect. A really fantastic summary for, for individuals who may not have heard about it. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's going to be a couple different components that we may learn more about it. One is kind of, is that timing of that window important? And there is some studies to show that the earlier, the better, right? Um, uh, so like our, our grandma's always said, don't skip breakfast, um, or maybe that, that, differs depending on your genetics or your microbiome or whatever. So, um, you know, I think we're still really in the infancy, infancy mm-hmm. of kind of really understanding what this is all about. Um, and then two, I would just say, you know, I think it's unlikely that we can alter our, our eating windows such that it doesn't matter what we eat. Right. So I think that the, what we're putting on our bodies is always going to be really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether we can further manipulate, um, our, our cardiovascular risk or our longevity or what have you by timing it kind of more in alignment with our bodies is kind of the the question that hopefully will get answered sooner.
0: Yeah. There's a lot still that's to be determined, but I personally have read a lot and studied a lot on that because I have patients who come to me with those questions. So when they're talking about things that I... I'm not all that familiar with. I try to learn as much as I can. And ultimately what you're saying is spot on. There's just not enough information yet to prove that we should be prescribing intermittent fasting as part of a heart healthy lifestyle. So, um, the last question that I have for you, which I know is probably the question that most people in my audience have is what about supplements what about all of the non-prescription medications and non-prescription therapies that are available to us, uh, complementary or integrative therapies, such as acupuncture, you know, Reiki massage. Um, and then of course, all of the different naturopathic herbs and things like that. Is there a place for those non-traditional or non-prescription treatment options in a heart healthy lifestyle? Do they work? Are they recommended? Are they dangerous? What are your thoughts?
1: All of the above. So, um so yes, I I definitely think. So one, I would say that um it's there's this really interesting balance that I think um we haven't yet sort of really figured out and that is you know, traditional medicine um Really relies on something called evidence-based medicine. And that's our backbone of how we learn and study disease and medications. Um, and um, and it's really important, right? But we also have to leave room and leave space for things like say intermittent fasting, which if you talked about that, you know five, 10 years ago, people been like, that's wackadoo nonsense like Mm -hmm. that, you know? So we certainly, you know, a lot of huge breakthroughs that have occurred even in traditional medicine were once thought to be, you know, super crazy. Right. And so I think we're, we're always, and it's good in some senses, we're very suspicious of anything new and different. um, But we also need to really be careful that we're not stifling sort of, um, developments and, um, you know, breakthroughs and sort of disruptions of the the status quo. Um, and I think, you know, something like meditation is another good example of how we actually now do have evidence that, that, that can be really helpful in lowering blood pressure. Whereas again, you know, 10, 20 years ago, your traditional cardiologist would have been said, that's bunch of baloney, right? So so, one, I think it's really important that as traditional doctors, we leave space for that those sort of traditional things because our our patients and rightfully so seek those those modalities out. Two, On the other hand though, we need to also be very cautious about some of these other interventions because they can be harmful to our patients and and it behooves us to know that as well. Um, So supplements are a really good example of um, situations where they can be um, mostly neutral. Um, Some have some efficacy behind them and then others um, can be dangerous. Um, So a good example um, would be something like antioxidants. Um, so we actually, so antioxidants, um, in theory sound fantastic, right? They are what help. Um, so we know that just to back up a little bit, what they kind of are and what they do, we know that cholesterol buildup is important for heart disease. Um, that's sort of the, the main driver is cholesterol getting into our arteries, but then something has to happen to that. Um, and what happens is our body reacts to it and the cholesterol, the bad cholesterol that's in those plaques, gets oxidized. And then that's what sets off this huge inflammatory cascade. So it was once thought, okay, if we just really artificially increase antioxidant um, uptake, then maybe that inflammatory cascade won't happen. um, And the plaque will just sit there and nothing bad will happen. And it was a really popular idea in medicine for some time, and we did lots and lots of studies about taking large quantities of antioxidants. And um, and after all the trials were said and done, it's actually a bad thing to take really large quantities of antioxidants. Um, and so, so you know, I think, um, uh, and hopefully most patients, you know, at this point are aware that that large quantities of, of, antioxidants in pill form can actually increase their risk for heart attack. And that's probably because there's something called this very, there's this very fine balance that has to happen, um, between, you know, we, our body needs inflammation to repair itself. Like there's a reason we have it mm-hmm. and it's this push pull. Um, and so, so we think at this point that, um, you know, re- consuming your antioxidants in quote unquote normal quantities, um, by, you know, nourishing our, our bodies with lots of plant foods that are high in antioxidants, is, uh, is kind of a much more beneficial route. Um, so, um, and, and then another good example of a supplement that has negative cardiovascular implications is calcium. Um, so we know that we need to be taking ingesting calcium in our food. Um, uh, it's really important for our bone health. Um, but the the um, sort of when you put all the data together, um, c- calcium in supplement form um, is, is probably actually not a good thing to for our body and can actually increase our risk of, of cardiovascular disease. And we think that's because transient levels of really high. Um, amounts of calcium in the bloodstream um, can actually cause increased risk of blood pressure issues and then also build up in our arteries. Um, so so it's another, it's another really important area of medicine where we really have to kind of come together um, so that we can best inform our patients about what's good for them and, and what might not be so good for them. Um, because understandably many of them are seeking out these sort of other other modalities and things.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult when patients come with um alternative therapies that we have not received training on. And our, I think our instinct is to say, no, 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 that's that's we don't know about it. We're, you know, I haven't been trained on that, so that you shouldn't take it. And then they'll go to a naturopath who will say, Oh no, these herbs are, I mean, these are ancient and these are fine and you can take them. And so I think it's really important that if you are going to pursue something that Um, maybe hasn't been studied, or maybe hasn't been mainstream that you get the opinion of some people who are really knowledgeable, um, integrative physicians, integrative cardiologists, integrative um, internists who do have some education and training in what is healthy, what is acceptable, and what is definitely dangerous and should not be part of your regimen as an individual, as it pertains to, or maybe um, is contraindicated in some, with some of your other medications. Right. I'm, he- I'm hearing a lot. I'm here. I'm extracting from what you're saying that, that pretty much everything should be done in moderation. And I'm pretty certain that that's a, an ancient philosophy too, that <laughs> will stand the test of time, moderate alcohol, moderate, uh, fats, moderate exercise, moderate levels of stress. Um, and maybe not coffee. We can't do moderation in coffee. I don't think I could do it. It's too good. It's too good. Um, I think that when I, Record a podcast. Usually I'll write down somewhere, tell patients, you know, who are listening people in the audience that you can, you know, kind of speed this recording up and play it at like 1.5 X speed. So, because, you know, it's maybe takes too long to listen, but you and I, I think we have met our match in fast talkers and you can probably (laughs) slow us down a little bit to make sure that you can hear all of the wisdom that Dr. Harkin has laid out for us today. I am so happy that you are here, that you are providing the service that you provide for patients virtually when people want to see an integrative cardiologist and may not have one immediately in their area, you have got their back. So I would love for you to tell our friends where they can find you either in person or virtually. And I will put all of your contact info, both on my website in these show notes and in the comments down below our video. Awesome. Yes. So
1: I am available to patients who are located in New York, Florida, and California. Um, My telemedicine practice is called whole heart cardiology. So you can Google that. It's at www.wholeheartcardiology.com. And then I also am pretty active on Instagram. So you can follow me at Nicole Harkin MD. I post lots of um, plant forward and plant-based tips and tricks and recipes and other heart healthy advice.
0: We have so much more to talk about, so I'm pretty certain that you'll be invited to be a regular on this podcast and and come back to talk about all the good things, preventive cardiology and preventive medicine for your heart and for your whole body and your whole life and your whole family. You are just totally what's
1: good for your heart is good for the rest of you. And that's, what's so awesome about it, especially Um, sex, coffee, and wine,
0: right? (laughs) hundred percent cardiology stamp of (laughs) approval. (laughs) Thank you so much, Nicole. It has been so awesome talking with you and I will see you again soon. Sounds good. I had so much fun. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast, Family Health with Dr. Lex. If you love the music like I do, you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time.